Today on Legal Leads, we are going to be discussing the meaning and the scope of the Ninth Amendment. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to Legal Ease. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, if you happen to be new to the program, let me uh, sort of bid a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, today we have a really good episode. Uh, and so many of my favorite videos on this channel are ones uh, that I do by viewer request. And I have a feeling that today's is going to be uh, no different. Now, I recently uh, put uh, some posts out across my social media pages asking people if they had any uh, myths or misconceptions about our Constitution or our government or our founding fathers that people would like to see me cover. And over on YouTube, a user, uh, Rafi Klausner, asked me for a video about the meaning of the Ninth Amendment, which was a very good suggestion. Uh, this is an obviously important topic as part of the Bill of Rights. Uh, and so this video is going to be a Ninth Amendment primer. We're going to be discussing its meaning and scope within the framework of text, history, and tradition. Now, also, let me just say that if there are uh, any other constitutional myths or misconceptions that people would like to see me address on the show, let me know by leaving a comment in this video. Uh, this is something, I, I already have a, a decent-sized list of ones I want to talk about, but I'm sure there are tons more out there. And I think this is going to become something of a somewhat regular segment on the show. So if you guys have any suggestions along those lines, uh, they would be very welcome. Now, before we talk about the Ninth Amendment, I'm hoping you will give me just a moment of your time to quickly update you on some uh, news related to the show. Uh, now, I have recently done a uh, complete overhaul of my online presence, and I now have two uh, different websites that do pretty much everything I need websites to do. Uh, and so the first one is the uh, new legaleeshow.com. Now, this page is directly for connecting with my content. This will take you over to my newsletter site on Substack, where you can browse uh, my main profile and get everything I post over there. Uh, or you can also uh, browse a curated content, which you can choose whether you want to you know, read video, read articles or watch videos or uh, whatever it is. Uh, and soon I will be adding a new section there that will be just for uh, show notes pages for each episode as well. Now, what's more, what I think is kind of cool about the Substack newsletter page uh, is that it doesn't just apply to browsing content, but when you sign up and become a subscriber to my content on Substack through this newsletter page, you can actually choose between uh, getting notifications about for all my stuff or if you just want curated content as well. So again, if you're someone that just mostly likes watching my videos or you mostly just like reading my articles, you can sign up and get notifications just when new videos or articles are uh, posted over there. And of course, if you're not a dick, you can go and get notified about any time I put up any new content, regardless of the medium. Now, I really like this feature, and I like it, the control it gives to you 
uh, the subscriber to get the content you want and nothing more. And this goes for whether you sign up as either a free or paid subscriber over there. Now, I simply can't bring myself to put my content behind a paywall. I prefer to make everything I, I publish or create freely available to everybody. But this is a volunteer operation. So if you dig the content I do uh, and you want to show your support by becoming a paid subscriber, you can do that over there. And it would, of course, be very greatly appreciated. Now, the other website is LegalEasePodcast.com. This is basically a show homepage where you can learn more about me, more about the show, find different ways to get in contact with me. You can sign up for my mailing list over there, which this, this would be exclusively just a mailing list for uh, periodic uh, updates about just any important updates or changes to the show that regular viewers might be interested in knowing about. Now, over here, you can also find uh, my content, all of my content, and you can watch it over there as well. You can also find ways to support the show over there. Uh, and you can also uh, get a copy of my new book, Constitutional Slate of Hand. This is a book about the implied powers doctrine. Uh, we talk about what it is, why it's actually very important, why anyone who is interested in uh, American politics and government should have a good understanding of what this doctrine is. And we also talk about uh, ways to begin rolling back the implied powers doctrine uh, more towards something like the original understanding that it would have had to the framers and ratifiers who gave uh, the document legal force. So from now on, uh, you can, if you just want content, you go to legalese And if you want to go to a show homepage, uh, you go to legalesepodcast.com. So let's get to the Ninth Amendment. Now, during the Senate hearings for the nomination uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court in 1987 of Judge Robert Bork, 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 Bork. <laughs> Judge Bork would famously go on to analogize the Ninth Amendment as a constitutional inkblot, arguing that judges could not use this amendment to decide cases because they do not have a way of knowing something about what it means. Now, when Judge Bork when he used this inkblot analogy, he actually provoked a huge wave of criticism, uh, both from living constitutionalists, uh, who actually at this point in time still self-identified as non-interpretivists, but it also provoked a lot of criticism from the originalist camp from which Robert Bork, from which he ostensibly derived. Now, if you want to understand why such a split could have happened in uh, the originalism philosophy, this is something that I have explained in my past video on originalism and textualism. I'll link it down in the video description. I would suggest going and watching it. Uh, and I talk about the often misunderstood evolution within this particular judicial philosophy, uh, and especially the uh, original sort of the proto-originalist camp of original intent that was championed by jurists such as Robert Bork, as well as uh, the great Raoul Berger, uh, as well as Edwin Meese uh, and other notable uh, judges and jurists as well. 
And we talk about how that differentiates from what became and continues to be the dominant school of originalist thought, which is original public meaning. So if you haven't seen that episode, I would recommend going and checking it out. You'll understand why there could be such a divide between originalists about what something might mean. However, the importance of this event of uh, Bork's inkblot analogy to our purpose here today really has to do with the wealth of originalist research that this incident would spur on. And this gave us uh, the most comprehensive understanding of the meaning of the Ninth Amendment to the framers and ratifiers who gave the document legal force. And so this is what I want to talk about today. Uh, and we are going to be doing a deep dive into the records of the constitutional ratification conventions of the several states between 1787 to 1792, as well as looking at the records of the second session of Congress in 1791, in which James Madison would introduce the Bill of Rights. And we are going to provide for you here today, uh, really, the most comprehensive history of the Ninth Amendment you will probably find anywhere uh, on a podcast, uh, specifically to the meaning that this amendment had to the framers and ratifiers who would give the Bill of Rights legal force. Now, we will also be looking at a handful of uh, cases within constitutional law jurisprudence that can shed some light on this amendment's understanding over time. Uh, and we will end by looking at this recent research I'm talking about that has been going on involving the Ninth Amendment ever since the Bork hearing. Bork, Bork, Bork. <laughs> and this is going to help us understand how this amendment can best be understood and applied today. But first, I suppose we need to get a good idea of what it is that the Ninth Amendment even says. So the text of the Ninth Amendment reads, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So the first thing to note about the Ninth Amendment, and this is something that it shares with the Tenth Amendment that actually sets it apart from the rest of the Bill of Rights, is that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments constitute what are known as a rule of construction, whereas the first eight amendments constitute what is known as substantive law. So substantive law is a type of law that handles the legal relationship between individuals or between individuals and the state. Now, the reason these rules of construction were necessary had to do with the Federalists who wanted the Constitution ratified without a Bill of Rights because they argued that adding an enumeration of rights would be dangerous because it might suggest that the only rights the people had were those enumerated in the Bill of Rights and that they had surrendered up to the general government anything not explicitly listed there. Now, it was James Madison who came up with a solution to this. It was a very simple and elegant one. He said, well, why don't we just have a, a rule of construction that says the enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution, for example, in the Bill of Rights, shall not be construed to deny or disparage the existence of others. Now, the question that the Ninth Amendment raises is, what is the legal status of the unenumerated rights that haven't been listed in the Bill of Rights or elsewhere? Now, to understand this, you first need to understand the meaning of the phrase 
rights retained by the people. Now, a retained right is a natural right. That is a right uh, that the people had before they formed government and which they retain once that government has been formed. It means that we are talking about rights that pre-exist the Ninth Amendment and were not in any way created by the Ninth Amendment. And those rights are simply the liberty to do what you will with what rightfully belongs to you. So, what do we know about the framers and ratifiers who gave this amendment legal force? Well, let's, at this point, I think, briefly dig deeper into the circumstances that led to the Ninth Amendment's inclusion in the Bill of Rights. Now, the story of the Ninth Amendment's adoption begins with the decision by the Philadelphia Convention to omit a Bill of Rights from the original Constitution in 1787. Now, this absence was among the most controversial features of the original Constitution's design, and it provided a rallying point for the anti-federalist opposition during the state ratification debates. Now, supporters of ratification quickly converged on a defense uh, of this decision to omit the Bill of Rights that was first uh, articulated uh, by the Philadelphia framer James Wilson in his uh, famous uh, speech outside of Independence Hall, uh, just several days after the Constitution had been released to the public. And he defended the decision to leave even very popular rights, such as freedom of the press, uh, unprotected, because he said the very declaration of such a right in the Constitution might have been construed to imply that some degree of power was given to the federal government with respect to the press, because otherwise, why would we undertake to define its extent? Now, Wilson's argument drew upon uh, something known as the negative interpretation canon. And this says, uh, inclusio unius est exclusio alterius, which uh, translates to the inclusion of one thing necessarily excludes all others. And this was a legal canon that was widely accepted by courts at the time. It remains widely accepted today under, uh, it's usually known under the more modern term, the negative implications canon. Back then, it would have been referred to as inclusio unius ex exclusio alterius. But uh, this canon is explained actually in great detail uh, in Justice Scalia's book, Reading Law. So I am going to uh, include uh, an excerpt uh, from his book where he talks about this canon, and that will be available on the show notes page for this episode. So the Federalists in other states quickly rallied to Wilson's argument here, contending that if the Bill of Rights had been included in the Constitution, the courts might construe the limited enumeration of rights to deny the existence of other rights and to constructively enlarge the scope of federal powers. Now, as Alexander Hamilton would go on to warn us about in Federalist 84, he said a Bill of Rights that contained various exceptions to powers which are not granted would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. And 
And so instead of relying on a limited and almost certainly incomplete enumeration of particular rights that the people would retain after the Constitution's adoption, the Federalist argument was that such rights would be better protected simply through the limited enumeration of the federal powers. But this defense of the Philadelphia Convention's decision to omit the Bill of Rights did leave the Federalists open to a fairly devastating rejoinder because the Constitution that emerged from Philadelphia already had a very limited set of rights uh, protected in it in the text of the document itself. Now, these came from Article 1, Section 9, and these included things such as the right of habeas corpus uh, and the right to a trial by jury in criminal cases. Now, Anti-Federalists would argue that the Constitution already imposed a threat of expansive interpretation that the Federalists claimed would result from enumerating rights. The Federalists really never settled on a satisfactory response to this particular objection. Nonetheless, ratifications in the states did proceed, though uh, they were increasingly supported through a tacit understanding that additional rights would be constitutionally uh, protected through something like an Article 5 amendment process following ratification. Now, several state ratifying conventions proposed lists of amendments that they wished to see adopted following ratification. Now, although none of these proposals perfectly mirrored the language that would ultimately be included in the Ninth Amendment, there were two sets of such proposed amendments that have been identified by modern originalists as potentially relevant to the amendment's original meaning. The first set of proposals called for an amendment that would expressly recognize the existence of retained individual natural rights. A characteristic example of such a proposal uh, was suggested by Virginia's ratifying convention, where they said they would like it to acknowledge the existence of, quote, certain natural rights of which men, when they form a social compact, cannot deprive or divest their posterity, including the enjoyment of life and liberty, and the means of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Now, the second set of amendment proposals, which were targeted more directly at the Federalist concerns regarding the Inclusio Unius Canon, called for a rule of construction providing that provisions expressly withholding particular powers from Congress should not be read to imply the existence of unenumerated federal powers. Following ratification, James Madison became the leading champion of a federal Bill of Rights as a representative from Virginia in the first Congress. Now, one of Madison's proposed amendments, which eventually evolved into our current Ninth Amendment, combined aspects of both the retained natural rights provisions proposed by the various state conventions and the separate list of proposals calling for an interpretive rule prohibiting the constructive enlargement of federal powers. Madison's proposal declared that exceptions of constitutional powers made in favor of particular rights should not be so construed as to diminish the just importance of others retained by the people or as to enlarge the powers delegated by the Constitution. Now, in a speech introducing the proposed amendment into the House, 
Madison would explain the significance of this provision in the following terms. He said it has been objected against a Bill of Rights that by enumerating particular exceptions to the grant of power, it would disparage those rights which were not placed in that enumeration, and it might follow by implication that those rights which were not singled out were intended to be assigned into the hands of the general government and were consequently insecure. This is one of the most plausible arguments I have heard urged against the admission of a Bill of Rights into this system, but I conceive that it may be guarded against. Now, Madison specifically identified his proto-Ninth Amendment as reflecting his effort to guard against such arguments. Now, following this floor speech that he gave, Madison's proposals would be referred to a select committee of the House on which he served. Unfortunately, uh, unlike the General House, this select committee kept no formal records of its proceedings, leaving modern interpreters like myself with very limited information regarding the considerations that influenced the amendment's final wording. However, there are some possible clues that can be drawn out uh, about what may have occurred during the select committee's internal deliberations, provided by a handwritten list of proposed amendments that was penned by another member of the committee, Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Now, Roger Sherman's second amendment on his list uh, of drafted amendments declared that the people have certain natural rights which are retained by them when they enter into society, including the rights of conscience in matters of religion, of acquiring property and pursuing happiness and safety, and of speaking, writing, and publishing their sentiments, and barring the federal government from depriving them of such rights. Now, a separate amendment in the Sherman draft contained a somewhat garbled provision that actually bears some resemblance to the rule of construction proposals that were urged by several of the state ratifying conventions. And what he says specifically is, nor shall the exercise of power by the government of the United States, particular instances herein enumerated by way of caution, be construed to, to imply the contrary. So in the end, the select committee would settle on the language uh, that departed both from Madison's initial proposal as well as that language reflected in the Sherman draft. This new language closely tracked the language that ultimately was included in the Ninth Amendment. And for reasons that are not known, the reference to constructive enlargement to federal powers, which had appeared in both Madison's initial proposal and in the proposal submitted by the state ratifying conventions, was dropped from the final version that would limit the Ninth Amendment's rule of construction to a prohibition on construing the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, in considering the disagreement among modern originalists regarding the Ninth Amendment's original meaning, it is useful to note a distinction between what the amendment says explicitly and what might be implied or inferred from its reference to other rights retained by the people. When read literally, the only thing the Ninth Amendment does is state a rule about how other provisions in the Constitution should be read. 
the Ninth Amendment thus stands out as one of only a handful of provisions, uh, along with the Eleventh Amendment, uh, as well as Article Four, Section Three, Clause Two, that speaks to how the Constitution itself should be interpreted. And the Ninth Amendment's explicit command does not directly confer rights or limit the scope of federal powers. Rather, the amendment simply instructs interpreters to reject arguments that seek to use the existence of particular enumerated rights in the Constitution to deny or disparage others' retained rights. Now, this rule of construction function is at the center of the traditional originalist view of the Ninth Amendment. It views the amendment as a direct response to the inclusio unius concerns expressed during the ratification debates of 1787 and 1788. This traditional view was defended by Justice Hugo Black in his dissenting opinion in the case of Griswold v. Connecticut from 1965. And quoting from Madison's Bill of Rights speech, Black described the Ninth Amendment as having intended to protect against the idea that enumerating particular exceptions to the grant of power to the federal government, those rights which were not singled out, were intended to be assigned into the hands of the general government. Proponents of this traditional view have expressed subtly different understandings of what the Ninth Amendment's retained right language was originally understood to encompass. But they agree that its prohibition on denying or disparaging such retained rights only comes into play when the basis for denial or disparagement is premised on the fact that the Constitution contains an enumeration of rights. Though all competing theories have recognized the amendment's function as a rule of construction, all agree that a normal speaker of English at the time of its enactment would have understood the amendment's text as implying both that the retained rights it refers to actually exist and that the federal government is prohibiting from denying or disparaging those rights. Thus, the Ninth Amendment's original meaning, uh, and this includes both its explicit meaning and the implications that would have been understood by an ordinary reader, prohibit all denial or disparagement of retained rights, even if such denial or disparagement is not premised on the misconstruction of some enumerated rights. And for the first 150 years of this country, all the rights retained by the people, both enumerated and unenumerated, were largely protected by holding state legislatures to a proper conception of their powers. All the focus was on powers, not on rights. Now, this is a crucial aspect of this amendment's meaning to bear in mind. All focus of the Ninth Amendment's meaning was on limiting government power, not protecting rights. However, going into the 20th century, we see a big change happen as political progressives started urging the court to engage in what we now call judicial restraint, in which they defer to Congress or to state legislatures by adopting a presumption of constitutionality, and in some cases, an irrebuttable presumption of constitutionality. Now, until the 1930s, roughly speaking, the Supreme Court uh, was much more sympathetic to claims of liberty. However, after the New Deal, and especially into the Warren Court, the justices started to pay very little attention to the text of the Constitution, and the idea here was to essentially let Congress and let state legislatures 
regulate economic activity however they wish, and then we may put some restrictions on their ability to regulate what we might today call personal liberties. Though it is important to note that uh, these distinctions between economic liberties and personal liberties is completely foreign to the text of the Constitution itself. This is a very recent invention. Now, the need to focus on the Ninth Amendment uh, in regards to this begins with a 1938 case known as U.S. v. Caroline Products. Now, this case contains what is uh, seriously the most famous footnote in the whole of American jurisprudence. This is footnote four. And what this essentially says is that you can only get heightened scrutiny if you're protecting an enumerated right. Now, the Caroline Products footnote simply announced that the court will give a broad construction to powers granting provisions of the Constitution, and it will also enforce unenumerated rights, but that it will neither give a limiting construction to the powers granted, nor will it enforce unenumerated rights. But this essentially gets reversed by Williamson versus Lee Optical in 1955. This is one of the worst cases in the entire history of the Supreme Court. Uh, and it, it's a very extreme case, really. Uh, but what what is partially what's so vexing about this is that it's obviously based on a piece of special interest legislation and was clearly, if you get read into it, the product of corruption. However, that aside, Williamson versus Lee Optical was a landmark case that marked the end of the court's willingness to protect unenumerated rights retained by the people that the Ninth Amendment was there to safeguard. This case stands for the proposition that unless you have an enumerated right, you get no protection at all. The legislation will always simply be upheld as rational. This is what has come to be known as rational basis review, which, if you take Williamson literally, means really more of a conceivable basis test because a judge will uphold any law that they can conceive has a rational basis, even if it's understood that that wasn't the reason the law was passed. Now, the question of which rights are included in liberty and which are not, of how much deference there should be to the state when it regulates liberty in the interest of equalizing bargaining power. These are all hard questions. Uh, these are all important questions. But what you should understand and remember is that they have nothing to do with the rule of construction in the Ninth Amendment. Now, interest in the Ninth Amendment grew during the last several decades uh, as the Supreme Court started giving heightened scrutiny to laws that intruded upon one of the enumerated rights and limited protection only to those enumerated rights. Now, this seemed to implicate the Ninth Amendment's very warning, or I guess you could say as admonition, that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, going back again to the case of Griswold v. Connecticut, the contraceptive case from 1965. This case may be as close as we have ever come to seeing the Supreme Court recognize the Ninth Amendment as an independent source of legal authority. 
Now, this case involved a restriction on the sale and distribution of contraceptives uh, that were uh, marketed to married couples. Now, a majority of the Supreme Court would invalidate the law in Griswold uh, based on what we now call substantive due process to protect an unenumerated right of privacy. However, one of the justices, Justice Goldberg, in a concurring opinion, said, This is warranted by the Ninth Amendment because the Ninth Amendment acknowledges the fact that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights does not preclude the protection of an, uh, an unenumerated right, like a right of privacy. In fact, uh, right there, Justice Goldberg used the Ninth Amendment uh, for really the first and only time as it was intended to be used, as a rule of construction, as a way of saying, in our kind of society, something that is a fundamental right cannot be denied just because you can't point to a particular clause in the Constitution that lists it. It rejected the idea that only enumerated rights get protection. Now, Goldberg seems very careful in his opinion uh, to deny that these rights come from the Ninth Amendment. However, unfortunately, this was an opinion, a solo opinion, by one single judge in one case. Now, there is another case worth looking at here, uh, which is the Richmond newspaper case of 1980. And this is the first case in which a plurality opinion of the Supreme Court relied on the Ninth Amendment to establish the existence of a fundamental right. In that case, the fundamental right was the right of the public and the press to observe criminal trials in the absence of some extraordinary need to exclude the public from some part of the trial. And Chief Justice Berger, writing a plurality opinion, invoked the First Amendment uh, as the reason for this ruling. He then goes on to say that while the First Amendment might not quite suffice, he later drops in a footnote uh, that says, The history of the Ninth Amendment shows, as Madison explained to the Congress, that the fact that the right in question, the right of the press and the public to observe a trial that the parties don't want anyone to observe, the fact that it is not explicitly protected, doesn't prevent it from being a basic right. And the, this is the big problem with today's jurisprudence is that uh, in spite of the Ninth Amendment, we have really created uh, two different categories of rights. The enumerated rights, which get heightened scrutiny, and the unenumerated rights that uh, simply don't get heightened scrutiny or any protection really whatsoever. And when we see anyone try to even uh, broach the idea of giving heightened scrutiny, people criticize it for being illegitimate. Now, the Ninth Amendment, if properly understood and fully protected, would probably constrict government in a number of different respects, precisely because, uh, in a way, the power of the government is really the flip side of the coin of individual rights. That is to say, a government's power can be defined 
only after you take away from that power the rights that the people have against the government. And if those rights grow, as they would under the Ninth Amendment, the residual powers of the government would correspondingly recede. It may be the most important thing to keep in mind when struggling with the Ninth Amendment is distinguishing between the meaning of the text and what is its role in the judiciary. So, what does the text mean and what should judges do about that text? These are two separate questions. And the thing is, we can agree about each and every word in the Ninth Amendment and what it means and still disagree about what a judge ought to do about that. Now, at the beginning of this episode uh, and in the uh, thumbnail for this video, I asked if the Ninth Amendment was the most important sentence in the Constitution. Now, I said this in a very tongue-in-cheek way because obviously, as we have just seen, this amendment has always been a dead letter as far as constitutional law is concerned. It has always been that. It has never not been a dead letter. So when I say that, it is certainly partially in jest. However, there is a kernel of truth to that statement because the Ninth Amendment establishes, or I, I suppose more properly, it reaffirms the most basic American theory of government, whose original expression was formulated in a unanimous fashion by the Continental Congress in the Declaration of Independence. Because after the Declaration talks about the individual and unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it goes on to say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. And the Ninth Amendment is an echo of that as it speaks to those rights retained by the people. That is to say, it speaks to the rights that we have prior to forming a government and that these are rights we retain even after forming that government. And in that sense, it could be said to be one of the most important sentences in the Constitution. And this is very much uh, in line with Randy Barnett's two great axioms of constitutional government. And especially his second axiom, but the first axiom being that the Constitution is not the law that governs us. The Constitution is the law that governs those who govern us. And his second axiom being that first come rights, then comes government. And we do see the ninth echoed uh, in that political theory on which the country was founded. The Constitution is not the law that governs us. It is the law that governs those who govern us. And first come rights, then come government. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me here uh, on Legalese. Uh, don't forget to do all of those things that help uh, trigger Al Gore's rhythm. Uh, you know, hit the, the thumbs up button, uh, subscribe to the channel so you always know when new video content comes out. Uh, if you want to leave me a comment, I always love reading your guys' comments and to uh, try and get a chance to talk with you a little bit in the comment section as much as I can. So if you would take a moment and do those things, I would be very grateful. 
Uh, don't forget to go check out uh, my two uh, new uh, homepages, LegallyShow.com and LegallyPodcast.com. Uh, so there's a bunch of good stuff over there to check out. Uh, so anyways, uh, until next time, this is Bob uh, for Legalese signing out. And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenta S. Motherfucker.